A hail of gunfire can be heard on the street outside of the headquarters of the Chicago Outfit, an organized crime gang in Cicero, Illinois. As machine guns ring out, the Hawthorne Inn is riddled with over a thousand bullets, each intended for the same man, the infamous Southside gangster Al Capone. But the mob boss escapes again, and he seems invincible, at least for the time being. So what finally did him in? Well, you're about to find out. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you are watching Lawyer Up. In today's episode, we are going to look at the history of the gangster Al Capone. We're going to look at the early years of Alphonse Capone and how he got the name Scarface. We're going to talk about how he got started in organized crime and then ascended the ranks to become the boss of the Chicago outfit. We're going to talk about his feuds with other mob bosses. We're going to talk about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and his baseball bat incident uh, that he is known for. We're also going to talk about elections that he influenced and all of the assassination attempts he survived. Then we're going to talk about what finally led to his arrest and his imprisonment on Alcatraz Island in San Francisco. And last but not least, after the dozens of assassination attempts that he survived, we're going to talk about what finally killed him. Remember to hit that like button if you enjoy the episode. If you got something to say or you have a comment, put it in the comment sections below. If you haven't subscribed, do so. Hit that subscribe button. And as always, I love it when you guys share me on social media. And don't forget, if you prefer me in your ear rather than your eye, Lawyer Up is available on all of the major podcast outlets. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 17th of 1899. His parents were Italian immigrants, having traveled to the United States in 1893 by ship. The family settled in the Brooklyn area of New York City. His father was a barber and his mother was a seamstress. Capone had eight siblings. One died as an infant. One became a cop. Brothers Salvatore Frank Capone and Raphael Bottles Capone ultimately would work with Al in his criminal empire. Bottles being the one who would later control Capone's illegal liquor operation during their Prohibition-era reign. Alphonse attended school at a Catholic school until the age of 14 when he was expelled for striking a female teacher in the face. From there, his formal education would end, but his criminal education was just beginning. Capone initially became involved with some small-time gangs, but then graduated to the more powerful Five Points gang based in Lower Manhattan. By 1917, Al's employer and mentor was a local crook named Frankie Yale, who was a bootlegger and a protection racketeer. From the funds of his illegal operations, Yale opened up a bar in Coney Island called the Harvard Inn, where Al Capone worked as a bartender and a doorman. 
It was under Yale that Capone learned the insights and the interworkings of the criminal world. It was also at the Harvard Inn where Capone inadvertently insulted a woman while working at the door, and he was slashed in the face with a knife on the left side of his face by her brother, a local gangster named Frankie Galuccio. The wound and scarring would ultimately lead to the nickname Scarface, which Capone loathed. He preferred to be called Snorky, which is a term for a sharp dresser. Regardless, from that point on when Capone was photographed, he would hide the scarred left side of his face, and he would say that the injury was received in World War I. After the incident, Galuccio and Capone actually made amends. Capone understanding that his misguided statements about his sister's posterior had prompted Galuccio's response in defending his family's honor. So each man apologized and Capone agreed not to seek any future retribution. And Capone actually stuck to his word, even after he became a successful crime boss himself. At age 19, Capone married May Josephine Coughlin, right about the time she was giving birth to their son, Albert Francis Sonny Capone. By all accounts, the two had a happy marriage, despite his criminal lifestyle that soon would unfold. It was during this time that Capone was also being mentored by gangster Johnny Torrio, who himself had caught the eye of a crime boss by the name of James Big Jim Colosimo. And in 1919, Big Jim invites Johnny, who in turn invites Capone, to leave New York City for Chicago. And Capone agrees, deciding to make a fresh start with his new bride and son, in Chicago. So Capone began his work for Big Jim in Chicago as a bouncer in a brothel, which he apparently did uh, more than one kind of bouncing because it was where he contracted syphilis, which would turn debilitating to him later in his life. And it's important to remember that these were the first days of prohibition in the United States, where alcohol sales and consumption were illegal under the 18th Amendment and the Volstead or the Prohibition Act. Prohibition would exist in America from 1920 to 1933. Despite being illegal, there was still a huge demand for alcohol in Chicago and elsewhere thus creating a massive black market for liquor sales, which fit nicely into the business model already in place for organized crime. Regardless, Torrio and Capone didn't play second fiddle very long because he took over the outfit's criminal empire after Big Jim's murder on May 11th of 1920, which Capone was widely suspected of being directly involved in. And from there, they started running illegal alcohol in and around Chicago. So at this point, Johnny Torrio was the head of an essentially Italian-American organized crime group that was the biggest in the Chicago area. And Capone was his right-hand man. They officially became known as the Chicago Outfit. They're also known as the Chicago Mafia or the Southside Gang. While the crime syndicate had roots back to the 1910s, the outfit rose to national power in the 20s under the control of Torrio and Capone. 
It's a period that is marked by bloody gang wars for the control of distribution of illegal alcohol in and around the Chicago area. But more on that later. So by 1923, Torrio and Capone had set up their headquarters in a town called Cicero, which was a suburb of Chicago. Capone was involved heavily with bootleggers from Canada who helped him smuggle large amounts of liquor into the United States. Capone was alleged to have been dealing directly with Rocco Perry, who was also known as Canada's king of bootleggers. Initially, they supplied all of Cicero's illegal drinking saloons with alcohol, and they did this either by choice or by force. As they expanded their liquor distribution operation, they understood the need to be shielded from the local police. And fortunately, they had a corrupt Republican mayor, Joseph Klana, who was a three-term incumbent, who they had been able to completely control with bribes through their Southside gang. But in 1924, the Democratic Party decided to run its own slate of candidates in the election, which represented a serious challenge to the status quo with their claims that they were going to clean up the town. The day before the April 1st, 1924 elections in Cicero, Capone brought in 200 men, and the gang began a campaign of stabbings, shootings, kidnappings, and general intimidation of several of the Democratic leaders. On the day of the election, Republican voters would be allowed to vote several times, Democratic voters and leaders were threatened, they were beaten, and they were kidnapped, with several being chained in basements until the voting was over. The Democratic headquarters were shot up, and of course the local police, well, they were useless. Now when word of the chaos finally reached sympathetic ears in Chicago, Cook County Judge Edwin Jericke sent 70 Chicago police officers to Cicero. Their arrival led to a famous gun battle between the police and Al Capone's men. Now, Al Capone would survive, but brother Frank Capone would not, as he was shot and killed in the exchange. Frank's funeral would be lavish, with $20,000 in flowers, ironically provided by local bootlegger and florist Dean O'Banion, who you will learn more about later. So it's April of 1924, and if Capone was not on the national radar before, he was now. And thus began the occupational hazard for Capone, which would be the many attempts on his life, as well as the threat of arrest at any time. It's important to note that while the Chicago outfit controlled the south side of Chicago, that there was a different crime syndicate that controlled the north side of Chicago, aptly named the North Side Gang. So you had the South Side Gang versus the North Side Gang, kind of like the White Sox versus the Cubs fans, right? And of course, there were other smaller crime syndicates sprinkled about the city as well. Torrio and Capone were wary of being drawn into gang wars and actually negotiated an agreement over territory between the various groups, including the Northside Gang led by Dean O'Banion. And yeah, that's the same O'Banion that supplied the flowers for Frank Capone's funeral. And so during the summer of 1924, there was peace for about a second. Here's what happened. 
a smaller criminal group known as the Jenna Brothers, who were known allies of the Southside gang, started selling cheap booze to O'Banion's customers encroaching on the Northside's territory. As they were allies, Torrio turned a blind eye to the Jenna Brothers and refused to step in and stop it. Obviously, this created a problem between the Northside gang and the Southside gang. Words were exchanged, and in a fateful step, Torrio arranged for the murder of O'Banion at his flower shop on November 10th of 1924, where he was gunned down while clipping chrysanthemums. Well, that pretty much crossed a line that could not be undone. So, with the death of O'Banion, a Jaime Weiss, now it is pronounced in German Weiss, but I'm in America, so I'm going to pronounce it Weiss. So if you hear it pronounced Jaime Weiss, same guy. So he, Jaime Weiss, assumed the head of the Northside gang. He was backed up by a Vincent Drucci and a Bugs Moran. And the Northsiders made it a priority to get revenge on the Southside gang in what would begin a five-year gang war between the two outfits. In January of 1925, Torrio was returning from a shopping trip when he was shot several times by the Northsiders. After recovering, he said, hey, I'm done. He effectively resigned, handing control of the Southside gang to Capone. So Al Capone, at age 26, became the new boss of the Chicago outfit, which at that time controlled most of the illegal prohibition breweries in South Chicago and whose activities were covered up by corrupt politicians and law enforcement protection. Once in control, Capone stepped up the violence to increase revenue. An establishment that refused to purchase liquor from him often got blown up and as many as 100 people were killed in such bombings during the late 1920s. Capone also expanded the brand and was responsible for the proliferation of speakeasies and brothels throughout the city. Capone also enlisted the help of local members of the black community into his operations. These were jazz musicians who would play at his clubs. So at these speakeasies, you had alcohol, you had prostitutes, you had gambling, you had drugs, and you had live entertainment. Now, as the boss, Capone himself indulged in custom suits, cigars, gourmet food and drink, and female companionship. He was particularly known for his flamboyant and costly jewelry. Capone was also a big donor of money, and he helped out with soup kitchens in Chicago. And again, this was during the Great Depression. So he was popularized for that. And Capone became a national celebrity and talking point. His favorite response to questions about his activities were, quote, I am just a businessman giving the people what they want. And all I do is satisfy a public demand. And he was protected, now flush with cash. He used bribery and widespread intimidation to take over various political elections, which helped him control law enforcement. So it's 1926, and things are going well for Capone. But don't forget the Northsiders, because that feud is still ongoing. 
And after the Southsiders made an attempt on Weiss's life, remember he was the new Northside leader, Capone's driver was found tortured and murdered by the Northside gang. And on September 20th of 1926, the Northside gang gathered outside of the Hawthorne Inn, a restaurant that was the headquarters for Capone. Several gunmen opened fire with Thompson submachine guns firing over 1,000 rounds at the windows of the first floor restaurant. In the end, Capone escaped unharmed, but he was quite shaken and thereafter called for a truce. However, there would be no truce. After the truce negotiations fell through, Capone actually went back on the offensive. And on October 11th of 1926, Jaime Weiss was killed outside of the same flower shop formerly owned by Dean O'Banion that now served as the Northside headquarters. So if you're keeping score at home, that's now two Northside crime bosses, both assassinated at the same flower shop. So with his death, that meant that Bugs Moran and Vincent Drucci were now promoted to bosses. And in retaliation, while they couldn't quite get to Capone himself, they did get a hold of the owner of the Hawthorne's restaurant, who was a good friend of Capone's, and he was kidnapped and killed by the duo in January of 1927. So that's where things stood heading into the spring of 1927. Capone is still squabbling with the Northsiders, but he was about to piss off a brand new guy named Joey Aiello that really, really wanted Capone dead. So here's what got Joey all upset. Antonio Lombardo was named the head of the Union Siciliana. It is a Sicilian-American benevolent society that was actually the cover for organized crime. So Lombardo was named the head but Joey Aiello, he really, really wanted that position. And it infuriated him that Al Capone had been responsible for Lombardo's selection because he resented a non-Sicilian's attempts to manipulate the affairs within the organization. So Aiello goes to war with Lombardo and Capone. So at this point, not only is the North Side gang after Capone, but Aiello is also plotting to eliminate both Lombardo and Capone. And he was super serious about it. Starting in the spring of 1927, he made several attempts to assassinate both men. On one occasion, Aiello offers money to Chef Diamond Joe Esposito, of Bella Napoli Cafe, which was one of Capone's favorite restaurants. And he was asked to put acid in Capone and Lombardo's soup. Instead, the chef exposed the plot to Capone, who responded by dispatching men with machine guns to shoot up one of Aiello's stores. And more than 200 bullets were fired into the Aiello Brothers Bakery on May 28, 1927, wounding Joe's brother Antonio. So in response, Aiello really stepped up his game during the summer and autumn of 1927 when he hired a number of different hitmen to kill Capone. They all failed. So then Aiello puts out a $50,000 reward for anyone who could eliminate Capone. Now, this was a long time ago. That would be about $750,000 in 
in today's dollars. At least 10 different gunmen tried to collect the bounty, but all ended up dead. Even one of Capone's allies, Ralph Sheldon, attempted to kill both Capone and Lombardo for the reward. But Capone's henchmen figured out the plan and Sheldon was the one who ate the bullet. Scarface, it would seem, was impossible to kill. Not to be deterred, in November of 1927, Aiello organized machine gun ambushes across from Lombardo's home and a cigar store frequented by Capone. But those plans were again foiled after an anonymous tip led police to the gunman. One of those gunmen confessed that Aiello had hired him to kill Capone. And that revelation led the police to arrest Aiello and to bring him to the police station. Upon learning of this arrest, Capone dispatched over 20 gunmen to stand outside the police station and wait Aiello's release. Reporters and photographers rushed to the scene to observe the expected upcoming murder. Capone gunman Frank Perry, Sam Marcus, and Louis Campagna were themselves arrested when they tried to force their way into the front of the police station. And after being arrested, they were actually placed in the cell right next to Aiello, where Campagna told him, your dead friend dead. You won't get up to the end of the street still walking. Now, Aiello pled for mercy and promised to leave Chicago if they would let him go. But Capone's men refused that request. Well, due to the hubbub, when he was released, Aiello was given a police escort from the station to safety. Then he immediately bolted with some family members to Trenton, New Jersey, where he regrouped so he could continue his campaign to kill Al Capone. And it was during this time that Capone, not surprisingly, became increasingly spooked and wanted to get away from Chicago. So Capone and his entourage would often show up suddenly at one of Chicago's train depots. They'd buy up an entire sleeper car and head to Cleveland or Omaha or Kansas City or Hot Springs, where they would spend a week in a luxury hotel under assumed names. As a more permanent retreat, in 1928, Capone purchased a 10,000-square-foot mansion in Palm Island, Florida, just outside of Miami. He purchased the 14-room mansion for $40,000 from Clarence Bush of the Anheuser-Busch Brewing family. This property would serve as his getaway home and ultimately would be the home he would die in in 1947. But let's stay in 1927. As Capone's operation expanded throughout Chicago, there was the obvious need for these bootleggers to have broadened protection from City Hall. So Al Capone is generally seen as facilitating the victory of Republican William Hale Thompson in the 1927 mayor's race in Chicago. After contributing $250,000, more like $3 million in today's dollars, in exchange for the promise by the mayor to protect illegal saloons. The next year, another politician, Joe Esposito, became a rival of Thompson. But on March 21st of 1928, he was killed in a drive-by shooting in front of his house. Then another rival, Octavius Granati, challenged Thompson and he was chased through the streets by gunmen before being shot dead. The message was clear. 
Do not mess with Capone's political machine. And the mutually beneficial relationship between Mayor Thompson and Al Capone would continue up and until an event that is now known as the Valentine's Day Massacre, which would spell the beginning of the end of Capone's immunity from prosecution. Now, despite being at his Florida home at the time of the incident, Al Capone is widely believed to have been responsible for ordering the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre, an attempt to eliminate Bugs Moran, the head of the Northside Gang. As we know, the Northside Gang and the Southside Gang don't like each other, right? At the time, Bugs Moran was the leader of the Northside Gang, and his succession had come about because his predecessors, Jaime Weiss and Vincent Drucci, had been killed in the back-and-forth violence that followed the murder of the original leader, Dino Banyan. Recall that Jaime Weiss was gunned down outside of the flower shop, and Drucci was killed in April of 1927, by notorious police officer Dan Healy while he was sitting handcuffed in the back of Healy's police car. So the backstory to the Valentine's Day massacre is that Capone's men rented an apartment across the street from Moran's headquarters so they could watch the movements of the gang and its men. On February 13th, Capone arranges for a fake delivery of whiskey, supposedly from Detroit, which was going to be sold to the Northsiders at a bargain price. Delivery had been set up for the next day at the Northside Gang's warehouse on Clark Street, and it's a garage where they kept their bootlegged alcohol and where their vehicles were kept. So on the morning of Thursday, February 14, 1929, Valentine's Day, instead of a delivery of whiskey, Capone sent in four gunmen disguised as police officers to initiate a police raid. The faux police then lined seven Northside gang men from the warehouse along a wall purportedly to search them, but instead gunned them down in cold blood. All seven were killed, but Moran was not among them. The fallout over the incident, especially when the photos of the slain victims were published, really damaged Capone's image with the public, and it led to his new nickname, public enemy number one. It also led to great scrutiny over the appropriateness of his close ties with Mayor Thompson. And the incident would kind of be the end of Capone's immunity from law enforcement as a bunch of legal trouble was soon headed his way. Now, Moran's response to the massacre was to go to the police and implicate Capone in the slayings. And within days, Capone was summoned to testify before a grand jury. But he never actually went, claiming that he was too unwell to attend. And after some time, the charges were dropped. In an effort to clean up his image, Capone donated more money to charities and sponsored more soup kitchens, but it wasn't enough, as the St. Valentine's Day massacre led to public discord about Thompson's alliance with Capone, and it would ultimately cost him the mayor's seat in an election in 1931. But let's stay in 1929 for now. So Capone was primarily known for ordering other men to do his dirty work. In May, which was not too long after the Valentine's Day massacre, 
one of Capone's bodyguards, Frank Rio, uncovered a plot by three of Capone's men who had been persuaded by Joey Aiello to try to kill Capone and then to take over leadership of the Chicago outfit. So upon learning this information, Capone set his counter plan in motion. And the night started off with drinks and dinner and ended, and this is widely disputed by historians, but the Chicago outfit would later state that Capone beat three men about the head with a baseball bat and then ordered his bodyguards to shoot them. It is a classic cinematic scene in the 1987 film, The Untouchables. Now, historians, they suggest that Capone henchmen actually did the deed and that the outfit deliberately spread the tale to enhance Capone's fearsome reputation. But regardless, three more people who had crossed Capone were now dead. So in the wake of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, Walter Strong, who was the publisher of the Chicago Daily News, decided to ask his friend, President Herbert Hoover, for federal intervention to stem Chicago's lawlessness. He arranged a secret meeting of himself and others at the White House shortly after Hoover's inauguration in March of 1929. Now, little was known about the particulars of the meeting until Hoover's 1952 memoirs, where the former president stated that Strong had argued, quote, Chicago was in the hands of the gangsters, that the police and the magistrates were completely under their control, and that the federal government was the only force by which the city's ability to govern itself could be restored. At once, I directed that all federal agencies concentrate upon Mr. Capone and his allies. Thus, that meeting at the White House in March of 1929 spawned a multi-agency federal effort to stop Al Capone. First, a small elite squad of Prohibition Bureau agents led by an Elliot Ness were deployed against Capone and his bootleggers. Charles Schwartz, a writer for the Chicago Daily News, dubbed them the Untouchables as they had a reputation as incorruptible law enforcement agents who were unaffected by intimidation of organized crime. His team was tasked with investigating Capone's illegal bootlegging activities in violation of the National Prohibition Act. Second, the prosecutions began. By April of 1929, Capone was arrested by FBI agents and he was charged with contempt of court for feigning illness to avoid that earlier court appearance. In May, Capone was arrested in Philadelphia for carrying a concealed weapon, and by August of 1929, Capone was sentenced to a prison term of one year at Philadelphia's Eastern State Penitentiary. Capone was released early in March of 1930 and immediately headed for his Florida home, but within a month, he was arrested on vagrancy charges while visiting the beach, as the Florida governor had ordered the sheriff to run him out of the state. Capone would claim that Miami police had refused him food and water and actually threatened to arrest his family in connection with the incident. By September of 1930, a Chicago judge issued a warrant for Capone's arrest on charges of vagrancy and then used the publicity from the charges to run against Mayor Thompson in the Republican primary. And in spite of all of the legal troubles and all of the focus on Al Capone, he was still resolved to get his revenge on Joe Aiello once and for all. 
So Capone's men started tracking him relentlessly until they found him hiding out in an apartment owned by a Patsy Presto. And on October 23rd of 1930, as he exited the apartment building to enter a taxi cab, a gunman in a second floor window across the street fired at Aiello with a submachine gun. He was hit several times before he toppled down the building steps and stumbled around the corner, attempting to move out of the line of fire. Instead, he moved directly into range of a second group of gunmen positioned on a third floor of an adjacent apartment, and he was finished off. By February of 1931, Capone was back in court, and he was tried on the contempt of court charge for feigning the illness to avoid the earlier appearance. During that trial, Judge Wilkerson actually intervened and asked questions himself of Capone's doctor, obviously aiding the prosecution. Well, Capone was convicted and sentenced to six months, although he remained free while the case was up on appeal. And so while there was a desire in the law enforcement community to bring Capone to justice, these petty criminal charges were really not doing anything to knock Capone and the Chicago outfit off of its game. So prosecutors started thinking outside of the box. Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrandt recognized that mob figures publicly led lavish lifestyles yet never filed income tax returns. So she came up with the idea of prosecuting these men for tax evasion, which would circumvent the difficulties of obtaining witness testimony from those who were reluctant to testify against the men regarding their illegal acts and their violent crimes. Now, she had already tested this approach by prosecuting a South Carolina bootlegger, Manley Sullivan, and ultimately the Supreme Court ruled that illegally earned income was subject to income tax, and it rejected the argument that the Fifth Amendment protected criminals from being obligated to report illegal income. So the IRS Special Investigations Unit chose Frank Wilson to investigate Capone and his income tax status. During the investigation, Capone ordered his lawyers to negotiate with the government regarding the potential of a plea agreement to the tax evasion charges. Crucially, during the negotiations that followed, Capone's lawyers sent a letter offering amounts of income that Capone was willing to pay taxes on for various years between 1925 and 1930, the highest of which was admitting income of $100,000 for both the years of 1928 and 1929. Now, instead of negotiating with the defense team, and since Capone had admittedly not paid income taxes on those amounts, prosecutors simply treated the letter as a confession. And on June 5th of 1931, Capone was indicted by a federal grand jury on 22 counts of income tax evasion from 1925 to 1929, and he was then released on $50,000 bail. Shortly thereafter, Elliot Ness and his team of untouchables inflicted major financial damage on Capone's operations. Obtaining much of their information from wiretaps, Ness instigated raids of Capone's stills, his breweries, and his speakeasies, destroying an estimated $9 million in alcohol and property. This led to an indictment on 5,000 Yes, 5,000 violations of the Volstead Act 
for violating prohibition laws. By July, Capone and the government had reached a plea agreement that contemplated two and a half years in prison. However, at sentencing on July 30th of 1931, Judge Wilkerson refused to honor the plea agreement and the case was set for trial. In doing so, Judge Wilkerson bifurcated the trial issues. He wanted to first try Capone only on income tax evasion charges as he determined that they took precedent over the Volstead Act violations. At trial, Wilkerson overruled objections regarding that income letter from Capone's lawyers. And the argument was that a lawyer could not confess for his client. However, the judge ruled that anyone making a statement to the government did so at his own risk. So the lawyer's income letter to federal authorities was admitted into evidence by the government and used against Capone as an admission of guilt during his trial. Now, the defense team argued that all of his income had been lost to gambling, which, of course, is a terrible argument because gambling losses, while they can be subtracted from gambling winnings, logic dictates that you have to have some income to gamble with in the first place. But it really didn't matter anyway as the government presented a great deal of evidence as to Capone's spending habits, claiming that Capone evaded $215,000 in taxes on a total income of over $1 million during that five-year period. Capone was ultimately convicted on five counts of tax evasion on October 17th of 1931. He was sentenced a week later to 11 years in federal prison, fined $50,000, and was held liable for the total amount of all of the back taxes plus interest. Now, after he hit prison, Capone hired new lawyers who were tax experts. Well, there's a thought. They filed a writ of habeas corpus claiming that Capone's imprisonment was not lawful. Their argument was based upon a Supreme Court ruling that tax evasion was not fraud, which would mean that the time he was serving was for charges that were prosecuted outside of the statute of limitations. It was a pretty good argument. However, the judge interpreted the law as to not count the time that Capone had spent on the lamb in Miami, thereby solving the statute of limitations problem. Capone was sent to the U.S. penitentiary in Atlanta in May of 1932. He was 33 years of age. He was escorted from the Cook County Jail in Chicago to Atlanta by several U.S. agents, including Elliot Ness. Upon his arrival to the Bureau of Prisons, Capone was officially diagnosed with syphilis and gonorrhea. He was also suffering from withdrawal symptoms from his cocaine addiction, the use of which had perforated his nasal septum. While in prison, Capone was not well liked by other inmates. He was seen as a weak personality and so out of his element in dealing with bullying by fellow inmates that his cellmate and former Southside gang member Red Ruzinski became his protector. The conspicuous protection of Capone by Rudinsky drew accusations from other inmates and it fueled suspicion that Capone was receiving special treatment from the corrections officers. Now, no solid evidence ever emerged, but it formed part of the rationale for moving Capone to the recently opened Alcatraz 
federal penitentiary off of the coast of San Francisco in August of 1934. Once at Alcatraz, cell 181 was Capone's new home. And due to his good behavior, he was permitted to play banjo in the Alcatraz prison band, the Rock Islanders, which gave regular Sunday concerts for other inmates. On June 23rd of 1936, while in the laundry area of Alcatraz, Capone was stabbed in the back with a pair of scissors stolen from the barbershop by fellow inmate James Lucas, who was serving a life sentence for bank robbery. Fortunately for Capone, Again, he was only superficially wounded, and he escaped death. It was while at Alcatraz that Capone's decline became increasingly evident as neurosyphilis progressively eroded his mental faculties. His formal diagnosis of syphilis of the brain was made in February of 1938, and his family stated that his letters were becoming increasingly incoherent. Capone spent the last years of his Alcatraz sentence in the hospital section, confused and disoriented. Capone was paroled on November 16th of 1939 after his wife, May, had appealed to the court based upon his reduced mental capabilities. Upon release, a very sickly Capone was treated at the Union Memorial Hospital, and then he went home to Palm Island, Florida on March 20th of 1940. In 1942, after mass production of penicillin was started in the U.S., Capone was actually one of the first American patients treated by the new drug. Though it was too late to reverse the damage to his brain, it did slow down the progression of the disease. In 1946, a physician and a psychiatrist examined Capone and they concluded that he had the mentality of a 12-year-old child. Al Capone spent the last years of his life at his mansion in Palm Island, Florida, spending time with his wife and grandchildren. After a heart attack and a series of other health problems, Capone died of heart failure on January 25th, 1947, surrounded by his family. Thereafter, Capone was transferred back to Chicago for a private funeral, and he now rests alongside his father and his brother at the Mount Carmel Cemetery in Hillside, Illinois. You know who else is buried at Mount Carmel? Well, Jaime Weiss is there, Dean O'Banion is there, Vincent Drucci is there, and all six of the Jenner brothers. They are all at this cemetery, along with a host of other notorious gangsters from this era. In the end, Al Capone is still considered one of the most infamous American gangsters of all time, particularly from 1925 to 1930, after Capone relocated to Chicago he enjoyed the status as the most notorious mobster in the country, which has made him a subject of fascination ever since that time. His personality and character have been used in fiction as a model for crime lords and criminal masterminds ever since. His accent, his mannerisms, and the stereotypical image of a mobster wearing a pinstripe suit, a tilted fedora. These are all based in reality and based upon Al Capone. As for the Chicago outfit, after Al Capone's conviction, the government hailed it as a victory over organized crime in Chicago. Ha ha, right? Al's brother took over for a bit and then a Frank Nitty ran the Chicago outfit for a spell. Although under Nitty, the gang operated at a lower profile without the open violence that had marked Capone's rule. 
And as prohibition ended, prostitution, racketeering, gambling, extortion, and loan sharking became the main money makers for organized crime in the city. Since then, several other gangsters have headed the organization. Famous names like Paul Rica and Tony Accardo are part of the history of an organization that still exists today in the United States. And although it has never had a complete monopoly on organized crime in Chicago, the outfit has long been the most powerful and the largest criminal organization in Chicago and the Midwest. So that is the episode. I hope you have enjoyed a look at the history and life of Al Capone. If you did, hit that like button for me. If you got a question or you got something to say, put it in the comment section below. If you haven't subscribed, what are you waiting for? Hit that subscribe button. And last but not least, I love it when you guys share me on social media. That's all for today. I'm Joshua Roberts, attorney at law, and you've been watching Lawyer Up. Send lawyers, guns, and money. 